You are listening to a Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We encourage you to share this with friends and family, but ask that you do not edit it without the permission of the owners. This Bible Talk is designed to supplement belonging to a local church with its teaching and community, not to replace it. We pray this talk helps you love Jesus and become more like him. The passage for this week is from Genesis chapter 39 to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis chapter 39. Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favour in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care, with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in his house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned up with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favour in the eyes of the prison warden. 
So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Chapter 40 The Cupbearer and the Baker Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream on the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were in custody with him in his master's house, Why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, In my dream I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to them. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of his prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favourable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, so that once again he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Chapter 41 Pharaoh's Dreams When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed amongst the reeds. 
After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came out of the Nile and stood beside those on the river bank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up by the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph said to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, In my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I have never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They just looked as ugly as before. Then I woke up. In my dream, I saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterwards are seven years. And so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are the seven years of famine. It is just as I had said to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt. But seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt 
will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered, because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man, and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming, and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh, to be kept in the cities for food. This food shall be held in reserve for the country, to be used in the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt, so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to his officials, so Pharaoh asked them, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, and there is no one so discerning and wise as you, you shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zapenath, Panah, and Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was thirty years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and travelled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh, and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim, and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt.
And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe everywhere. Hi everyone. Um, it is a delight, isn't it, to be back here again, uh, reading through the story of Joseph. And uh, you may be wondering, um, where is this going to go? We've been asking this question, haven't we, this uh, series? Uh, who is the royal snake-crushing seed? But I gave it away last week, didn't I? It's not going to be Joseph. Um, it's going to be one of Judah and Tamar's children, Perez. And so this question um, needs to be changed. It needs to be changed a little bit. And uh, as we've been reading through Genesis, um, we've been uh, learning some tips. How can we read the Old Testament well? And we're going to start with that. We're going to start with our Old Testament narrative reading tip. And what we're going to be talking about is something called typology. This is a really fancy word, which basically relates to how characters in the Old Testament reveal Jesus. Uh, now, we've been looking at uh, the almost snake-crushing king, Joseph. He's kind of like the royal snake-crushing seed, but he's not exactly. But as we look at Joseph, um, we see behind him to a true snake-crushing king. And as we read the story of Joseph and we get information about him, we realize that he is what we may call a type. It's just a fancy word, a, a, a person who reveals information about the anti-type, the one who is greater to come. What, what do we learn so far? Well, in chapter 37, of course, we learned that uh, this person, Joseph, um, has been chosen by God um, to rule his people. Um, he's betrayed by his brothers and he's, he's kind of killed off and thrown in a pit. And as we see Joseph, the antitype, the true snake-crushing king, becomes just a little bit clearer. What is he going to be like? And that's how Old Testament characters, certain ones, point to Jesus, reveal Jesus. What they do is they color the picture a little bit more, in which each type, the picture gets clearer and clearer and clearer. And of course, as Jesus comes on the scene, he is the royal snake-crushing seed, without a doubt. But this is why this typology stuff is helpful to bear down, because you may be asking the very good question, which is, why should I care reading the Old Testament? I've got Jesus, and it's true. You can read the Gospels and read the life of Jesus, and you can learn wonderful, many wonderful things about the royal snake-crushing king, Jesus. But here's the kicker. When you look at Jesus through the lives of these Old Testament characters, you get a bigger, richer, larger sense of what Jesus has accomplished. And that's why it's important and helpful for us to, to think through and, and to wrestle with the life of Joseph. Because coming back to the series, he's the almost snake-crushing king. And as we look at Jesus uh, through Joseph, we're going to see how Jesus is in a greater way how he's the true snake crushing king and so the question for us Steve is, is, is not anymore going to be who will be the royal snake crushing seed but what will the royal snake crushing seed be like and that's going to be the new question for the rest of the semester what will the royal snake crushing seed be like how does Joseph show us what Jesus is going to be like and we're going to be reading wow three chapters Thank you to the team who did that. What a beautiful group dramatic reading. And we'll see a pattern emerge as we look at those three chapters. 
discreet but connected, as a pattern of the life of that future king. And that pattern is going to be one of descent, going down, stasis, staying still, and ascent, rising. So let's go to that first one, descent. Read with me in chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Joseph was the was probably in the best position he could be. He was the favorite son of Jacob, who carried the Abrahamic blessing, the, pre, the blessing of God's people. He was the favorite son of Jacob. But he was betrayed by his brother, and he's thrown down, down, down into the pit below the ground. He's raised up very briefly, only to be sold and moved down, down, down into Egypt. He descends into Egypt as a slave. And he's bought by a man called Potiphar. However, in verse 2 we see, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Now, of course, Joseph is going to prosper, right? He's God's chosen ruler. He had those amazing dreams. And as he is living in this house, his master sees that he's blessed. And he decides to, it's kind of crazy, give this slave total authority over his entire house. You can run the whole ship. Except one thing. Did you see? He doesn't let him take care of his food. I, I don't know why. <laughs> He's really sus about the food. <laughs> He'll still prepare his own meals. But Joseph starts to bless Potiphar's house. And this is where we see that Joseph is kind of, not exactly, but kind of the royal snake-crushing king because God had made a promise to Abraham that through him and the one who would carry on the blessing, the nations would be blessed. Now at this stage, it's a very small blessing. It's just Potiphar's house, this Egyptian slave master. But through Joseph, the house does well. Potiphar's house is blessed because of Joseph. And then the story takes a very strange, strange turn. We read in verse 6 that the author makes an explicit point that Joseph was well-built and handsome. Strong man. Now, I don't know about you, but up until this point in the story, I always thought that Joseph was like a scrawny little skinny guy. I mean, he got thrown in a well by his brothers. But he's not. He's ripped. <laughs> and so... Really, this is what we should be thinking about <laughs> when we have our graphic. <laughs> Joseph is a well-built man. Sorry, Lauren made this, so I didn't just... You know. He's a well-built man, and Potiphar's wife sees it. He sees, she sees this blessed man, and she wants some of this hard-working hunk of Hebrew goodness. She, she wants a little... Joseph in her life and she says come to bed with me come to bed with me um, and, and, and the author makes effort to say day after day she comes for him come to bed with me I think as, as young people you may know uh, the, the kind of the, oh, the grip of sexual temptation it is pervasive unrelenting Repetitive, it doesn't end. 
fact, it gets worse and worse and worse. And how does Joseph respond? How does he respond? Well, not like Judah, who gives in. He resists day after day. He resists until it all comes to a head where she grabs him and says, come to bed with me. And he runs away. He resists. He runs away. And for the second time in Joseph's story, he's derobed. His cloak falls off. It's, it's in her hand. And he runs away naked. Wow. Well, Potiphar hears about this. And he is, he, he, what does the text say? He burns with anger. He's angry, livid, exasperated, shocked. This slave tries to sleep with my wife. So what he does is he takes him and throws him even further down, down into jail. Joseph was not just a slave anymore. He's a slave and a prisoner. It really can't get worse than this. And what's truly sucky about this whole thing is that he was doing the right thing. He tried to do the right thing. His loyalty to God, did you see what he said when Potiphar's wife came? It would be a sin against, not, not Potiphar, against God. His obedience and loyalty to God is tested. He does the right thing. And instead of it going well for him, it goes incredibly poorly. He gets thrown into jail and falsely accused. And then the story says, after some time, do you see that? Sometime later, chapter 40. He stays in that jail for 11 years. Stasis. You can do the maths. 11 years, around that amount of time. Can you imagine what that would be like? to be falsely accused, stuck rotting in a jail for 11 years, from the ages of 17 to 28, the best years of his life. I mean, I think some of you might feel that way about your university assignments. This man is stuck in jail, a convicted felon, with no vindication. And here in this place, he meets two characters. Uh, he meets a cup-bearer and a baker, two of Pharaoh's officials, again, to deal with food. And they've made Pharaoh angry. And he, again, he's sus about the food. I don't know why, what's going around. Is there like a cyanide poisoner running loose in Egypt? He throws him into the jail, th these two, and uh, they're sad. They're really sad. Can we get a collective awe? Three, two, one. Oh, they're really sad because they've had dreams and there's no one there to interpret them. Ah, but Joseph comes on. Joseph, the great dreamer, now interprets these dreams. But before we get to the interpretation, I just want to highlight something that the text labors and will labor again. Joseph said to them, reading in verse 8, Do not interpretations belong to God. Dreams and their interpretations belong to God. And the reason this is important is that you may remember from week one that Joseph had dreams of his own. He had two dreams, actually, of his own. But it wasn't clear in the story who gave him the dreams. Joseph is asserting a fact here which links these two chapters together, that 
if Joseph is dead right about this, that dreams are given by God and their interpretations, that maybe his dreams are too, and they will come to pass. So the first guy comes forward, he's the cupbearer, and he says, I've had this dream, and Joseph interprets it for him and says, good news, cupbearer man, you're going to get out. In three days' time, you're going to be free. You're going to be lifted up. The baker, he's like, oh yeah, that's great news. He sees that it's a favorable interpretation, and he goes, what's my story? Oh, buddy. <laughs> Joseph turns to the baker and says, uh, sorry, friend, you are going to die. And it happens. The dreams come true. And of course they do, right? Of course it comes true. Why? Because dreams belong to God and the interpretations especially too. It's Pharaoh's birthday. I guess on his birthday he frees some people and kills some people. He frees the cupbearer, kills the baker. But before the cupbearer was, uh, sorry, cupbearer is supposed to get out of jail, Joseph turns to him and says, remember me when you get out. Don't forget me. Cupbearer, I guess he promises to do so, but he forgets. What a chum. And now Joseph is stuck in the jail for two more years. Two more years. And now we get to the final arc of the story, the ascent. Having been stuck in stasis for a long time, Joseph finally ascends. How does this come to pass? Well, Pharaoh himself has two dreams, and he's really stressed out. He's also pretty sad because there's no one to interpret it for him. And the cupbearer, he's like that friend on Facebook who like just sees a message and doesn't respond, and then two years later is like, ha ha, lol, sorry, got, <laughs> got around to it, um, how are you doing? Um, <laughs> the cupbearer remembers that this has happened two years ago, and he says, ah, there was this Hebrew slave, a prisoner, who interpreted my dreams and it, came, and it came to pass. So Pharaoh says, bring him forward. And so Joseph, um, well, I don't know what he looked like at this stage. Like, I guess there's like squiggly, like smelly lines coming off him and he's got a beard. It's really like out of control. They shave him, clean him, dress him up, bring him before Pharaoh and charge him. Interpret these dreams. And Pharaoh recounts these dreams, and I think it's worth us reading them. So let's read together in chapter 41, reading from 17 to 24. What are these dreams? 41, 17, 24. Pharaoh said to Joseph, In my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean, I had never seen such ugly cows, cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first, but even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. Yeah, here's another dream. In my dream, I saw seven heads of grains full, of good, full and good growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. Joseph, he doesn't need to sleep on it. He's able to just interpret it on the fly. 
the cows and the grain represent years. There will be seven years of abundance, lots of food going around, followed by seven years of famine, so severe, so severe and awful that you will not even remember the good times. And on the spot, Joseph goes a bit further. He's bold, isn't he? He, pr he provides some sort of plan of attack. He says, this is what I would do. Uh, take a fifth of the, the grain of the harvest every year in the years of abundance and store it away. So when the years come of famine, you will have food in the land and it will go well with you. And Pharaoh and the, his court go, wow, that's a really good plan. And they say, look at him. He must be infused with some sort of divine power. And you know, they're kind of right. Maybe not in the way that they thought. But God had given Joseph true wisdom of how to handle the situation. And Joseph goes from this prisoner slave to being the second most powerful person possibly in the entire world. He, is, he was previously derobed in shame. He's re-robed in glory. He's given power and authority and people move out of the way when he comes by. Make way. Make way. If you look in your, uh, if you, especially got the NIV, which we're using here at CU, if you, if you look at your footnote, it says, another translation is they bow down. They bow down before Joseph. He shoots up, ascends to this place of exaltation and glory. And here's where Joseph makes the first mistake, I think, the first mistake in his arc. Um, despite repeating twice, I miss that, in, when he, before he um, uh, interprets Pharaoh's dream, he also repeats again that interpretation and dreams belong to God. Despite repeating that twice, and therefore ought to know that his dreams would come to, would come to pass, um, Joseph interprets his newfound success, the fact that people are bowing down to him, as the actualization of the dream he had in 37. Remember that dream? People would bow down before him. They're bowing down now. And we see that when he names his children. See, Joseph is given a wife and he has two kids, two sons. There's a lot of that going around in these chapters. Two sons. And the first one he calls Manasseh. Why? Because... God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. I've forgotten all my father's household. Joseph had a dream that he was supposed to be in charge of his father's house. And this is the error he makes. See, the royal state-crushing seed would not rule the nations alone. Hear me? The royal snake-crushing seed will rule over and from the house of Jacob first and would from there bless the nations. I mean, I, I, I kind of sympathize with Joseph, don't you? He's been in jail a long time. This amazing thing happens. Surely this is the great thing that God has expected in his life, but he's wrong. He's wrong. He may be one of the most powerful people in the world at that time, but he is not reunited and over the family of Jacob. And so, he, yes, he's got it wrong. However, we do see he names his second son Ephraim. Joseph, still faithful, is able to attribute all that he has gone through 
and says, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. uh, Joseph is able to see that God has been kind to him. And what happens then? Well, the famine hits. After seven years, Joseph's riding around, gathering up all the grain. He stores it up and famine comes just as God intended and promised. And all the world is starving. But Egypt is able to survive because of Joseph's foresight and his ability to plan ahead because of what God has gifted him with. And we see then that the blessing extends beyond Potiphar's house now to Egypt. All of Egypt is blessed because of Joseph. And in fact, in the text, it says the whole world, all the nations now come to Joseph. They come to him, him. They buy grain from him. He is the one who blesses the entire world. And now we see that Joseph has come to this great place. If you can kind of map his arc as a drawing, he's gone down and he's gone all the way up now in charge of the whole world. Everyone's coming to him. And so we see something really interesting happen. In chapter 37, we talked about how there were two competing stories. There was Joseph's uh, ascension was anticipated in his dreams, his ascension to a glorious place. But his dissension was actualized by his brother's betrayal, the fact they kind of killed him off by throwing him in a pit. But, friends, even though there are two competing stories, there's only one sovereign God. He's able to make his death lead to his glory. And that's why uh, this is the drawing we've kind of put up. Lauren has beautifully drawn for us some visual theology here. Joseph must fall for him to receive his crown. He must suffer before being glorified. He must be humiliated before being exalted. He must descend before ascending. And that's why the series is called According to Plan. This is all God's plan. God's plan for his royal snake-crushing seed. I think Lauren has done a beautiful job. I mean, this is my drawing um, (laughs) that I gave her. (laughs) Crown. Um, (laughs) God intends for his royal seed to descend, be humiliated, to suffer before being glorified, exalted, and rise. And so when we ask the question, what will the royal snake-crushing seed be like? I think we learn two things from this passage, these chapters. Firstly, one, you you see the concentric circles. Uh, God's royal seed is going to uh, radiate God's blessing to the nations, just as promised to Abraham in Genesis 12. But also, the seed is going to have a U-shaped life. And I just want to dwell on that for a second. Just on that bit. This is where we come back to our typology stuff we were talking about. Because Joseph is a shadow of Jesus, right? He's a shadow of the greater king that's to come. So when we read Jesus' story, and we've, we've read Joseph before, we should be alerted to the type of life that the king is supposed to have. It should inform how we read Jesus' life. In fact, his disciples and the religious leaders ought to have known that, by, but they don't. Passage in Luke 9, hopefully that's big enough. Jesus predicting his death. Um, his disciples are trying to figure out who he is. And he says to them, the Son of Man must suffer 
must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. I'm sorry if it's a bit small. It says the leaders of Israel or the sons of the covenant. I hope that rings some bells for you. And must be killed and raised to life on the third day. Yay, I guess. I mean, why must the Son of Man suffer? Why, why must it be the case that the royal seed has to have a U-shaped life? You can scour the scriptures and I'm, I'm excited for you to talk about it afterwards. But I think what it boils down to is it just pleases God. It just pleases God to shame the proud, the big, the wise, and to raise up the low, the despised, the small things. Because by doing so, it clearly demonstrates God's power. See, Joseph doesn't rejoice in his ascension. He recognizes that it's a gift of God, that we see that in the naming of his children, don't we? God has blessed me. He didn't do the time He didn't even do the crime. He didn't do the time and therefore get his crown. That's not how it works. No, God has just mercifully blessed him, even though he suffered. And so when we look to Jesus, we kind of see that we should expect that kind of U-shaped life. But the thing is, and this is what's helpful when we put it in light of Jesus, is that we see that what Joseph is going through is a picture which is made clear in Jesus. The U-shape that Joseph experienced points to the U-shape that Jesus had, which is death and then resurrection. Death and then resurrection. That's actually the U-shaped life that Joseph is trying to point to. That's what it's actually all about. That's the greatest U-shaped life. Jesus is one. And so, and this has been haunting me this week, because Jesus then says to them all, whoever wants to be my disciples must must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who are in Christ, the U-shaped life is the pattern of what your life must be like, not an optional extra. It must be like. For those who are in Christ, they can expect that they will have a U-shaped life. They They must deny themselves and they will rise in glory. And so now I've been rushing to this because I want to land here and I want us to think about this. How does Joseph's U-shaped life seen through Christ inform, assist, encourage you as Monash University students, Christians? How does his descent, his stasis, his ascent inform your descent, stasis and ascent? The first thing I want to say is um, expect it, expect it. Um, You guys are so brilliant. You've done so well to get where you are today. You did really well at school. You may not feel that way right now about your grades, but you're high achievers. And uh, every bit of advertising that the university puts out will tell you that uh, you are going to change the world, that it's up and up and up for you. And a lot of Christians kind of adopt that. And they get taught that the Christian life is up and up and up. Expect a U-shaped life. Run away from hollow, deceptive teaching, which teaches you that your life is just going to be easy, great, awesome, with 
no, no, no pits, no falls. Expect it and it will lose its edge when it comes for you. That's one thing. The second thing, and we're, we're going to look at Joseph's life, is embrace every part of it. Well, what does Christian descent look like? Let's first look to Joseph's life. Joseph suffered because he was obedient and loyal to God. And I think that's the type of Christian descent that you can experience. I mean, there's going to be a lot of suffering and stuff coming in life for all of us. But, uh, like, I don't know, sickness, death, uh, heartbreak, whatever it may be. But that's actually not just for Christians, is it? Like, non-Christians experience that as well. So it cannot be, it cannot be uh, just the general suffering we have in life. When we look to Joseph, we see that it was because of his obedience to God that he suffered. Um, when I was at uni, uh, I got more involved in the Christian Union. This is not that long ago. Maybe it was. <laughs> Feels that way. And my friends despised the fact that I used to sit with you guys. They despised it because it meant I wasn't hanging out with them. They always questioned, do you really believe those things that Christians say? Why are you spending your lunch times going out, doing walk-up, telling people that Jesus, why can't you just hang out with us? They began to despise my faith. And then they just began to despise me. Um, I'd be left out of group chats. There were big group chats that weren't used anymore, but they were talking about the group chat, concentric circles that I wasn't part of. That hurt. That hurt to lose friends. I would be kicked out of study groups. Um, people wouldn't sit with me in lecture halls. Some of you today in, in, in your life as a Monash University student, for the sake of obedience to God, loyalty to God, will experience this sort of thing. You will be denied positions of authority. You will not be able to be presidents of clubs. You will have group members who will just not want to talk to you. And people will find you strange and weird. And you may experience stasis. Like you might go on for a very long time. And you may never get justice or reconciliation. And here's where Joseph's ascent is so helpful. When we look to Joseph's life, the type of life he had, it's almost comical, co truly comical, his ascension, isn't it? Can you imagine what it would have been like? Right, think about it for a second. They decided to put in charge of one of the po most powerful nations in the world, a slave prisoner who wasn't even Egyptian. His ascension is comical, it's massive, it's glorious. And it's so amazing that when we look at Joseph's ascension, it gives us a picture of what Christian ascension may look like in the resurrection. I'll get there in a second. When Joseph names his children, it's clear to him that he's forgotten all his suffering. Why? Because his ascension is so amazing and large that all the things that went before pale in comparison to his ascension. That's why the Apostle Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, these light and momentary troubles, that dissension, Christian persecution, these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. When we look to Joseph's life, his massive, insane ascension, we can have hope that the things that we go through aren't actually going to be remembered because of how amazing the ascension will be. But here is where seeing it through the lens of Christ is important because it is not going to be 
a material blessing in your life, just like Joseph, right? It's not going to be the recognition that Joseph gets in his story. Why? Because Joseph's U-shaped life is but a shadow of the true U-shaped life, which is death and resurrection. That's the life of the Christian. So your ascension is going to be your resurrection, your glory there. You may get vindication in your life. You may be put in positions of authority, but do not expect it. It is not what the U-shaped life is about in light of Christ. That being said, look to Joseph to see how great and amazing that ascension truly is. And I want to say one last thing. So expect it. Embrace the parts of it. And this is the bit that I want you to really focus. Rejoice in it. Rejoice in it. Um, this is not just a story, uh, uh, like, I don't know, a burden of some slightly older Christian telling you to endure. You know, the years are going to be weary, friends. Keep going. Yeah. But no. Rejoice in the U-shaped life. It is a glorious thing. Why? When um, in, in Acts 5, when the apostles are beaten and persecuted, they rejoice because it says that they, they rejoice because they realize that they were counted worthy to bear suffering and disgrace for the name, for the sake of the name. They knew that the further they descended, it was just proof that God had counted them worthy of descending so they may ascend. You must suffer so you can be glorified. And so when you come to the dissension in your life, rejoice in it. Because it means that God has counted you worthy to ascend with his son Jesus. And as you go about your life, do not just look to the ascension with grumbling or waiting for the end. Like Joseph, hold on to the promises uh, with confidence and assurance and look forward to your ascension for sure. Uh, but don't just keep your head down. Be optimistic in what God can do. So now we come to the end. I just want to say this last thing. Um, the U-shaped life is a wonderful thing because it is a picture of the gospel. It is a picture of a, a slave, a dead man, a slave, being set free from slavery and exalted into a high place. And so as you go out into the campuses and you, may ex you experience Christian dissension, know this, the further you descend into darkness, the more luminous and glorious your ascension will be because it will just give greater scope and insight into the power of God that he can raise you from even a lower place and raise you even higher as you go forth into the campus be encouraged rejoice in the u-shaped life and if you want to see what a picture of faithfulness looks like consider reading these chapters of Joseph's life consider dwelling on his weight of glory that bears on him as he rises to power that's kind of the life you can expect in your resurrection. Thanks be to God. Thank you for listening to this Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We long to see everyone at Monash University know a disciple-making disciple of Jesus Christ. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would love to support Monash Christian Union, 
you can do so via the link in the podcast description.